Welcome to Behind the Monologues. I'm Alexa Denny. And I'm Michael Chase. And we're your hosts. Today, we're going to be discussing everything that we learned from examining Studio Theater's UD monologues, also known simply by students as MONS. Through interviews with the directors and some of the cast members, we were able to discover what exactly makes this show so special. We hope that by hearing their stories, you will also be able to learn about yourself, your relationships with others, and society as a whole. Our lives are shaped by our experiences. Every day we encounter new people, ideas, and opportunities that have the ability to change us. But many times, the most important moments of our lives go unnoticed or undiscussed. What if there was a safe space for people to come together and tell their stories without fear of judgment or discomfort? Here at UD, our studio theater club does just that. By offering opportunities for students to write and perform their pieces in the UD monologues, studio theater allows for students to express themselves in ways that they perhaps have never been able to do before. So first, let's start out with a conversation about Tessa Hill's monologue, Dear Dad. This monologue was a letter that Tessa wrote to her dad, who unfortunately passed away about two years ago, and she talked about all of the emotions that she had to deal with since the time that he passed away, and how she was able to overcome all of those negative feelings and move on with her life. Because in the end, when you have to deal with a big topic of grief, you have to find a way to come to terms with those feelings and to move on. And so this struck me because I also have a close relationship with my dad, and I can't imagine what it would be like to lose him. So I also think that this was very well written, and to deal with a big topic of grief, you have to find a way to come to terms with those feelings and to move on. And so this struck me because I also have a close relationship with my dad, and I can't imagine what it would be like to lose him. So I also think that this was very well written, and she performed it beautifully. And I found so much strength from what she said, and I think that a lot of other people also found this to be very powerful. So why don't we just give this a listen, and then afterwards we can break it down a little bit. Let's listen. Dad, how can I explain to them how funny you were? (laughs) That you could make anyone crack a smile? How do I explain to them that you were a child at heart, always up for a wild adventure? You thought like a kid. You could never understand what everyone was so worried about. You were just happy to be here. Dad, how can I explain to them that you were there for anyone? You were so willing to give of yourself and your time to help others, you gave so much. But Dad, how can I explain to them how much I miss you? Words fail at every attempt because you are supposed to be here and you are not. Taken from us far before your time, how, Dad? Dad, how am I supposed to graduate college when you won't be there? I can see it now. I will walk across that stage and I will look up to my loving family in the stadium and I'll see the empty seat next to them. 
This is the day that I have been working towards my whole life. Every night spent at the kitchen table, you helping me with my homework. You gave me your knowledge, your passion. I would not be here without you, yet I am here without you. Dad, how am I supposed to marry the love of my life when you are not there? He will never get to ask for your blessing. You probably have never even met him. I will tell him stories about you and he'll smile along, but he never heard the way you laughed. And he'll never know the way you loved. Someday someone else will be walking me down the aisle. You are supposed to give me away. You are supposed to be there. Dad, how am I supposed to have children when I know you will never hold them? Dad, if you were there, you would love them more than anyone. I know this. You would laugh and chase them around the house till your old knees gave out because that's the way you were. But Dad, how am I going to explain to my children why I cry when I look into their eyes? I will cry because I see in my little baby's eyes that there is a piece of you in them, Dad. Yet they will never meet you or Mr. Tickle Monster, and will never know your love. Dad, you make me want to pray to a God I don't believe in. I do not believe in heaven, but I pray that you're there. And I don't believe that you can hear me, Dad, but I pray that you can. That I'm not talking into the void, that you are watching over me. I pray, please, God, Please don't let my dad be dead. Please let this be some sick joke. Please, please. But I don't believe it. This would be a whole lot easier if I could believe the way you did, Dad. Dad, how am I supposed to forgive you for leaving me? How do I explain to them that you were the greatest dad a girl could ask for, but that you were also sick? And that it's not your fault you were sick, but it's your fault you wouldn't let us help you. How am I supposed to be angry at someone who isn't even here to be angry at? What am I supposed to do when the one man who was always supposed to be there for me isn't there? Dad, I feel like I'm losing you more every day. The first Christmas without you, I cried all day. The second, I cried when I could. The third Christmas without you, I spent at mom's boyfriend's. I didn't cry at all. How could I be okay if you aren't here? How could my heart not bleed every second you're gone? How could I forget the sound of your voice, dad? How could I forget you? I'm so sorry. Dad, I do not know what my life is going to look like without you. And I sure as hell hate imagining it. But I will keep going for you. I will cross that stage for you. I will love my husband for you. I will chase my kids for you. And I'll hold you in my heart every day. Goodbye, Dad.
So, Mike Chase, what's going on here? Let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, I thought that she did a really good job of conveying the wide range of emotions that she was feeling. I think a lot of people incorrectly assume that grief is all about sadness, when through this monologue she shows that it's also about anger and confusion and dealing with things that you never thought that you would have to deal with. I'd have to agree. When she said that, her friends would say, yeah, call me if you need me. That's something that I would do, and I never knew how to handle that. But in her monologue, we see that it's a lot more than call me if you need me, but more is required. Yeah, I think that that's a very valid message to draw from her monologue is that even if you're someone who hasn't had to go through the same thing, that you can understand what it's like from her explanation. And that was my second point, is that I thought she made it very accessible to the audience. I think the way that she structured her monologue made a lot of sense to me. She kind of started it out very simply by saying things that she thought that a lot of other people could understand, like graduation and her wedding and things that she always thought that her dad would be there for. But then she moves on to some of the more complicated emotions like anger with him for not wanting to accept help and confusion about how she's supposed to handle all of this. I think that you could definitely tell, I mean, this is a topic that's very close to her heart and I think that that's something that is really important when you're writing a monologue is to find a topic that you feel really passionate about or that you have some sort of emotional connection to because not only will it be simpler to write but it's easier to connect to the emotion that you really need to come across with a really wonderful performance and so Although this was a difficult topic for her to tackle, I think that through the performance, it came off really well because you could tell that she just had that emotional connection. Indeed. And so finally, I think that there are a few different lessons that we can take away from this monologue. Like I said before, grief isn't just about sadness. There's also anger and confusion and also even happiness when you think back about the good times that you had with that person. And you, as the person struggling through this grief, need to find a way that you can come to terms with all of this and to continue to be yourself and to live your life without being stuck in the past. And so I think that that is a very interesting way to describe the process of grief that I never thought about until I heard this monologue. The other thing I wanted to say is that Tessa, when she met with us, she talked about how difficult it was for her to deal with the emotions when she first started trying to deal with them because for some people it takes a couple months after the person is gone to finally start thinking about these things. And so she talks about how she went to therapy and she learned that 
the healthy way that you have to let go of grief is to work through all of those emotions, to get them out of your system, and to eventually move on after losing that person. Do you think that therapy is a good way for people to work through those difficult emotions? Without a doubt, we are all very social creatures, and there's too many topics that we shield ourselves from. It can be love, it can be, well, anything that we find disturbing. We tend to live in this world where people expect perfection out of each other, and it's only in, well, do you remember slumber parties as a child, and you would go over to someone's house, and you would sleep over, and you would stay up very late and watch Chronicles of Narnia's, and after it's that's done at 1.30 a.m., you would talk about these feelings, these emotions, the really deep stuff that's only shared during a slumber party. Those are what I wish we talked about more. Those opportunities to talk about grief, things that extend beyond how awful chemistry is or what I did over the weekend. Grief is a hard thing to talk about, and it's only through those very deep personal social interactions that we can heal each other. And sadly, we don't do that today, but we do have therapy, and in therapy, you go a step beyond just having a close friend listening to you. You have a trained professional who knows within reason exactly how to help you. Therapy is one social aspect that we can use to heal ourselves, and I think it's vastly underrated. I agree. And also, going back to the idea of this show, I think that in some sense, theater can be defined as a sort of therapy for some people. Um, I mean, Tessa probably, although she was working through all of this, she might not have thought about the big picture of everything that she had to go through, I mean, until she wrote this monologue. I know when we talked to David Schaefer, the director, he talked about how theater for him was a release to let go of everything that has been a struggle for him. And it's that kind of safe space that allows for a greater dialogue on these kind of big issues that I think a lot of people don't talk about. Do you agree that theater can be a sort of therapy for people? I very much agree. We've also heard from the directors and the cast members what happens after they share their most difficult of experiences. Rather than it just being a show and it ends, the cast was there for each other. They would hug each other after sharing these difficult stories with others for the first time. A real big, genuine group hug, not a good job hug, but a real loving hug. And we'll learn later what real love means beyond a simple hug in David Schaefer's three little words, Alexa. I would like to talk about this piece. Three words said too often, yet not enough. I love you. 
And I'd like to share with you Alexa, David's monologue, where he claims we do not tell our friends we love them enough. And we do love them. However, in his words, there is a taboo that we are not supposed to tell our friends that we love them. And I cannot agree with him more. It exists. But today, I experienced the yet not enough portion, not the said too often approach. Perhaps that's with girls, you hear the I love you in meaningless ways, but I hardly hear it at all. It's just three little words. David's piece speaks for itself. It needs no further introduction. Let's roll it. I love you. Three words that have such a profound impact on those who exchange them. The first words that a mother whispers into her newborn's ear, the ending to a conversation between father and son as the father sees how his son has grown up to be the man he was raised to be, the blossoming of romance as the honeymoon phase of our relationship gives way to a deeper, stronger relationship that may just stand the test of time. Or maybe an eighth grader saying that to their crush of two weeks only for the relationship to die out a month later, whatever it may be. Those three syllables are meant to solidify a deep, deep bond between the involved parties. Oftentimes, this phrase is constricted to family and partners. You may hear a very occasional, I love you man, at a party or such, but rarely amongst friends. And I propose that changes. My friends are the best thing that ever happened to me. Throughout high school, I never truly felt like I was a part of a close-knit group. I mean, I had my people that I hung out with and liked them quite a lot, and they liked me back, or so I like to think. And I had a fun time with them and still consider them friends to this day. But there was always this feeling that I didn't have as close of a relationship with them as they all seemed to have with each other. I got to college and promised myself that would change. I threw myself in everything that I did, hoping that I could find a group of people that I just wasn't able to find in high school. <sighs> If there was a way to overreach that goal, I think I did it. I found a group of guys freshman year who found my little quirks endearing and came to me first when they needed a fifth roommate for junior year. I found guys who will laugh with me for trying and failing to play something other than goalie in soccer, who will then turn around and laugh with me when I finally get to play my actual position and I stop all their shots. Well, most of their shots, we don't talk about the other ones. I found an entire fucking club that welcomes me with open arms and accepted me for who I was, both on and off the stage. I mean, I credit the people I've met at this school as the ones who have truly morphed me into who I am, and I can't thank them enough for it. So, riddle me this. If that's the case, why is there this taboo that I can't tell them that I love them? I'm sure you all remember those little shits in elementary school who would make fun of you for saying you loved ice cream or something trivial like that. Well, if you love ice cream so much, why don't you marry it? They'd sneer at you, making you feel dumb for showing a strong attraction to something. Or how you never wanted to tell your parents you loved them in front of your friends, because that was sissy talk or whatever. Sure, kids are dumb and love to poke fun at each other for stupid shit like that, but think about it. We're being taught at an early age that loving something or someone isn't something to be shared with others. I mean, God help you if you tried to tell your friend you love them in fifth grade, you'd probably be called a bunch of names and ostracized for a bit. Does that ever change as you go through school? For most, I don't think it does. A close friend of mine brought this up in a conversation earlier this year. She lamented that it was dumb that it wasn't deemed acceptable for you to tell people that you loved them in a non-romantic way. I mean, if you care enough about that person and that person cares for you in the same way, then where's the issue in exchanging a platonic I love you? 
She started saying it to her friends and noticed that there was almost always a little sparkle in their eyes after she said it that wasn't there before. People enjoy hearing that they are loved, that they truly do matter to someone. And that really resonated with me. And so I started saying it as well. Saying I love you was weird at first, but the more I do it, the more comfortable I feel. I'm comfortable enough with myself to tell people when I care about them. I have no issue telling people the impact that they've had on my life and how much they mean to me. Because they really do mean everything to me. And I'll be damned if some societal norm doesn't think it's cool for me to let them know that. So to the friends who have asked me to listen to their stories, crying in my room late at night or waking me up to have a life chat at the early hours of the morning, I love you. To the friends who have stood by me, supporting me in everything I do and being there for me when I needed a shoulder to lean on, I love you. To the friends who joke with me about some of the dumb shit that I do and who let me joke with them right back, I love you. To the friends who know me as the guy who gets way too in the thunderstruck and beer pong at parties but still enjoys my company anyway, I love you. And to the friends who may not even consider us to be very close, maybe exchanging one or two words of greeting every time we see each other, I love you. We don't tell each other that enough, and hearing that can mean the world to someone. If you love them, let them know. All it takes is eight little letters, three little syllables, three little words. Let's talk about it. There was a lot that's happening here, and it's all wrapped up into a simple message that says we need to say we love each other more, but it's also much more than that. David's tone, starting with something simple, he wraps a comical personality with a serious topic at the same time, making soccer jokes and reflecting how his relationships need to stretch beyond a joke. He's not a love-struck cliche artist or an author that says the same thing over and over. And yes, we are talking about love, but it's love in a different way. The love of friendships, a love we never talk about. To quote him, if you love them, let them know. All it takes is eight little letters, three little syllables, three little words. Loving something, loving someone should be shared with them. I know I'm personally afraid to show my love for others. David says he's not afraid of it. It's just something we don't do, especially guys. And until hearing his monologue, I was afraid of saying these three words. Words that, unless carefully constructed, can be interpreted in wrong ways. Words that could scare a friend or at least puzzle them. And we never say, I love you, in a serious context. Seeing my friends makes me happy because they're friends, because they're my good friends, and I love them for that. But they are words that I never use. Do you share that? Yes, I think that the topic of his monologue is very valid. Like you said, it's really not uh, very common for people nowadays to tell, especially friends, the words, I love you. 
Um, I like the point in his monologue that he makes where he says, you might say, oh, love ya, in like a joking context, but people won't really seriously look you in the eyes and say, I love you and seriously mean it, although they probably do feel that way. And so I definitely agree that it can be difficult sometimes to really say those kind of things, even though you might feel them just because of the way that society teaches us that that's not okay. And saying these words, at least with me, it sticks. I remember David's love and when he said it in the podcast, Michael, I love you. His love sticks in my mind wherever it is. When he tells me he loves me, I remember it. And besides my family, he is the only person in a long time that has told me, I love you. And I am forgetful. I forget people's names, our shared experiences, where I know them from, but I will never forget David's love. And it's changed my behavior. I told Matt, someone on my floor, someone who I respected but never told him the chance to say how much I loved him for being himself, that I loved him. Unexpected, it was, but worth it. It was the first time I heard a genuine thank you and a genuine smile from him. And as I'm sitting in this room recording to this with Alexa Denny, Rachel's sitting next to me, listening in, smiling, and as silly of a podcast this is, or serious of a podcast it is, she's appreciating it. And Michelle O'Dowd, sitting next to her, or standing next to her, leaning against the wall, is someone I'm going to go to London with this summer. I don't know how I love her yet, but I do. Rachel smile and I talk to you at KU. I love you. Alexa, we've spent a lot of hours in pool together. I love you, Alexa. So, what can we learn from these two pieces put together? There's two big patterns I picked up. The first is we tend to conform to society whatever society is, whether society is right or not. Getting therapy is still taboo in some sense, and the stigma is going away. However, it's still there. When I went to counseling once, one of my friends asked, hey, where are you going? And I beat around the bush to before she kept pressing and I told her, yeah, I'm getting counseling because I'm pissed off at the world. But we do conform to these whatever society values, even if what society values is wrong. Saying these three words is important. Talking to other people about your problems. I wish we weren't afraid to ask for help. Wish we shared what is on our mind instead of passing by a loving friend and giving them a one-worded response to, how are you? I wish we all changed how we behave.